Welcome. We trust you will be encouraged by this message from Bonnie Chavda by Chavda Ministries International. Real love, real people, real power. Hallelujah. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. If you haven't greeted your neighbor this morning, go ahead and do that. Now, give somebody a blessing. Thank you, Lord. When we come together, when we meet together in person, let us become more and more aware of the reality that we are dwelling in dual dimensions. And when the church meets together, it is intentionally for us to rejoice and worship together in recognition of the fact that we are not just in the earth. And we are not just speaking and hearing human words. And we're not just in the presence of present mortals. Because our Bible tells us that we have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, to Jesus the mediator, to God the judge, to the blood that's speaking better things, to innumerable company of angels, and the spirits of just men made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded, let us lay aside every weight every weight, every anxiety, every speck of unbelief, every bit of discouragement, all fears, anger, bitterness, betrayal, rejection. Lay it down. Lay it down. Be free. Be free today. You are a new creation, created. In Christ Jesus, in his death, you died. In his resurrection, you were created anew. And Jesus has come before he is coming. He has come into the earth beginning on the day of Pentecost. When from the completed work offered in heaven, poured out of the throne the living person of God as the river of the Holy Spirit, that everyone who believes in him, which is a gift. Remember what Jesus told Peter. Who do men say that I am? No, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, by revelation, recognized and confessed. And that day, Peter's identity was also changed. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for, the anointed one, appointed by God to bring about all of his good and great promises for the earth, for heaven, for the human race. Therefore, let us run. 
life's marathon with patience and continue looking unto Jesus. So be encouraged today. You have an appointment to live in this time through the family line that you were born into. God thought of you before he created the heavens and earth. That's what the Bible says. You were in him. And then he was watching as you were being knit together. His vision was coming to pass, being manifest in your mother's womb. And then you appeared. And so our life on this earth is a very tertiary, short one. But it's very meaningful. Because if you know Jesus, if you have that conviction in your heart, this was a heavenly gift that God the Father gave you to be able to respond to him. Gave me to be able to respond to him. So cherish that gift. Not everyone has that gift. Not everyone has been given that gift. And do you know what? You may be the carrier of the gift giver for someone who's not yet received the revelation that Jesus is the one we're waiting for. And so we're thankful. We are also very thankful this morning to welcome the Hoovers. <laughs> Stand up. Mr. and Mrs. Michael. Yes, it's so good to see you. Welcome home. Welcome home. May God continue to give you the grace of, oh, I don't know, the grace of Jesus. He put a foot on heaven, put a foot on earth, put a foot on the sea and on the land, and you have a foot in two homes, both back in Indiana and here. But we welcome you, and we're delighted and happy for you. Praise the Lord. Amen. So let's all stand together. We are going to make a proclamation from the word of God. And remember, the word is alive. Say alive. It's active, full of power. It comes as a seed and produces what God has ordained. And the soil of every person's heart is a little different. When I was in Ashland, which by the way, Pastor Mahesh was ministering there the last two nights and I the previous two before that. And while I was there, um, Sister Debbie Garland gave me a Hanover tomato. Well, Hanover tomatoes are famous and Ashland claims that it is the center of the universe. But what she pointed out is that the uniqueness of Hanover tomatoes isn't from a Hanover tomato seed, because there is no such thing. It's from a tomato seed, any tomato seed. But if you plant it in the soil of Hanover County, it's what's in the soil that creates that tomato. Come on. My word, says the Lord, will be like a seed that goes forth into your earth, and then it will produce what I've ordained for it to. Yeah. And along with that blossoming out, that rising, the gifts of the Spirit, supernatural enablements to think, speak, reason, discern, understand, know, 
That's why the church is the only hope of the world. There is no other light source. Only believers with the word of God sown in them, in us, and filled, anointed, and led in obedience to the Holy Spirit. So, tell your neighbor, neighbor, you have an anointing from the Holy One. Neighbor, make your calling and election sure. Amen. So, here we go. Pastor Mahesh and I, for the many years that we ministered in the third world, we learned by experience that when you stand and declare the word of God, you're not just speaking into empty air. You're not just speaking at a human level. You're literally releasing this powerful, alive, active word into the spirit realm as well. Heaven and earth, angels, demons, principalities, powers, as well as the hearts of men here to receive the word. All right? So this morning, priests, we are performing a priestly function as we make this declaration together. It comes from Psalm 34, and I believe that here we go. All right. You ready? Together. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant, and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried out, and the Lord heard him and said, saved him, sorry, saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears, and delivers them out of all their trouble. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart, and save such as have a contrite spirit. Where's the rest of 17 and 18? Same psalm. Thank you. 17. Thank you. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. Can you say amen? Amen. amen. That is a biblical worldview. Hallelujah. So give the Lord some love. Now, as though you were looking directly in his face, in the face of God Almighty, 
meeting you this morning, tell him, say, Lord, I receive all you have for me. Pour it on me, Jesus. Lay it on me, Lord. Here I am. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. The Lord answers prayer. He answers the prayers of his saints. I know that one of the things we've been praying is concerning the impending famine for so many that has only potentially been intensified by the conflict in Russia, Ukraine, and the holding up of the grain and sunflower oil shipments there. And thankfully, uh, together with, you know, meetings of human beings, but the reality is those ships are being released. So I think it's eight or so, the convoys are going out and already um, arriving at some of the ports in the Middle East. So, saints, that's an answer to prayer. It's not just human beings doing something, but it is the prayers of the church according to the scripture we actually participate in and, if you will, drive geopolitical events. And it would be unfortunate if the church huddles in a little corner without a supernatural worldview. Because then we're only thinking about ourselves in human terms and maybe about our world in human terms and it will be completely overwhelming. But that's not the revelation of scripture. That's not the revelation that Jesus brought and showed to his disciples when he walked as a man on earth. He did very specific things, showing his ultimate supernatural authority in contest with the powers of darkness over which he ultimately completely triumphed at the cross. But that wasn't the end of the story. Because without the resurrection, the cross would have no effect. But he is risen. He is coming. But he has come. And he indwells us. So, uh, when I was in Ashland, one of the nights, in fact, the second night, the night I got the Hanover tomato, um, I was impressed to revisit the story of Naaman and Elisha in the scriptures. And um, if you've heard me in the past in the story of Naaman, I have tended to make a, a prolonged big deal elaborating on the part where Naaman goes down into the river and, you know, has to take off all his layers of excellence and military command and be exposed in his utter weakness before the men who up until that time probably served him in absolute reverence and fear and only wanted to either be like him or never displease him. And suddenly they saw his utter weakness. Well, as I was preaching, in a moment, oh, get ready, in a moment, I had this sensation of something pooling around my ankles. And so I glanced down while I was preaching, and I saw that 
my skirt was lowering. Now, Ashlyn has a big pulpit, big pulpit. So I managed to keep preaching to catch the pending disaster and work it back around to where it should be without a hitch. And then I forgot about it and went right on preaching. And a few moments later, I'm sweating like crazy. It's, you know, hot and, well, it's, I had the second coming. But this time, it came suddenly as a thief in the night. And this time, the camera from the side view Sending out the live feed. <laughs> it's true. I am not exaggerating this story at all. <laughs> this time it came suddenly, and it was so suddenly that I actually felt go, and I caught it right at my knee. Now, thankfully, I was fully clothed with undergarments, even as the priests were commanded to do so, and now I understand why. And in spite of the fact that my undergarments were all flesh-colored, <laughs> that's the truth. So any of you who have assumed to have some kind of connection to me personally out of a sense of respect or thinking others respect me, that is over. <laughs> and it's true. I caught it right here. And... Then the cameraman realized that they had caught it as well and quickly cut to the front. <laughs> and at that moment, I turned because there was only one of the leaders, and this is the way Ashland works, one of the leaders that was still on the platform behind me, and it happened to be Brother Glenn Garland. And this time, I can't explain to you why, but I looked at Glenn like, what is happening? Do something. And so until that moment, any of the audience that didn't actually know what had occurred saw the look on his face, and then they knew something was going on behind that pulpit. <laughs> Why did I tell you that story? I don't know. Well, anyway, and you know what they say, once it's on the internet, <laughs> it's out there forever and ever, amen. <laughs> uh, so I said, how in the world did that happen? Well, my advice is do not buy cheap skirts made in China. because I tested that fabric afterwards to discover that if it gets the slightest wet, it loses all structure. And it had. <laughs> that has nothing to do with the message today. 
except to say that I know all the more fully. When the Lord says that his glory will be your rear guard, he means it. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> Amen. Well, I love you guys. So, so thankful. So thankful to be a living part of your life, our journey together. And um, in reference, actually, to the message, um, we understand in our experience together, and it's really heightened and we're discipled by our experiences together in the watch, that the, a particular aspect of what God has called us to and made available to us all who gather together in this place is to, in every time we gather, for it to be a living presence where we have an opportunity corporately to actually hear the presence of the Lord and what he is speaking, saying, emanating in that immediate moment and have an opportunity to give it sound and respond to it. And that's what we call a prophetic word, right? So, as you know, in the watch, there will be uh, moments and times that we hear things and we say, bing, the that's, that's something from the Lord. And uh, a few weeks ago in the watch, we made mention of things about the altar of God. And then uh, on Sunday morning, Brother Ken carried that forward, gave us a testimony about building an altar for the Lord. And... Interestingly enough, that same week, just a couple of days earlier, I had gotten a testimony and pictures from a young man that we have been loosely mentoring and, and maintaining a relationship with for about 20 years now, uh, who supplies rentals to the oil flats, the oil uh, drilling companies in Alberta, Canada, out in the wilderness, very blue collar, very depressed economically, all of that. But this guy has had a burning heart to preach the gospel, to be able to share the gospel with his community, with his peers, with that particular echelon of Canadian society, which as you know, if you watch anything in the news, has been particularly suffering this last couple of years under the, the mode of their administration. And um, so he and his wife decided to initiate and launch their ministry called The Altar. And the event that they planned was called Away in the Wilderness. And they literally just put out on Facebook, they built a little wooden preaching stand. He brought a massive hot tub as a baptismal pool, got that all hooked up literally out in the woods in this particular region and just put out on Facebook, we're inviting you all to come, won't cost you anything, we'll feed you and we'll, you know, fellowship together in the Lord and hear the gospel. They had 1,700 people show up. 271 people were water baptized at the altar. And I call him Zinger. His name is actually Steve Holstrom. But Zinger is the name of his rental company, so I've called him Zinger for the last 20 years. He's finally gotten over it and gotten used to it, I think. 
He told me, I've never experienced such an anointing, such a presence in my life. And those three hours that we were water baptizing people were so glorious. It's all worth it. It's all worth it. But it was also beautiful to me how that testimony harmonized with the particular prophetic word about the altar and what was being elaborated. And so often, what I will try to do is hear what the Holy Spirit is quickening and allow him to open it further. If there is a moment in time for a life lesson or a course correction or an encouragement or some kind of a healing word that is on that prophetic word, to let it come. And so I decided to just go and refresh my mind on altars in the scripture. And in that context, what you see in the patriarchs actually begins with an act that is initiated by God, but not elaborated in our scripture. And that would be when God slew living animals that he created in order to get skins to cover Adam and Eve after the big boo-boo. What was that big boo-boo? The big boo-boo was choosing to use the exercise of a kind of sovereign free will and authority and all the intellectual gifts that God had put in the humans by sheer creation of them in his image. And with it, free will. And at a certain point, they used all of the image of God that had been given to them, all of that prowess, all of that authority, all of that that gave them communion with him. He walked with them in the evenings. They conversed together. There was no separation. It was open presence, face to face. Amazing. Until the day they had two choices before them. And he had already spoken at least to one of them of which way he ought to go. And whether he spoke to the other one or not, when that decision was made, let's rethink this and let's choose our way. Say our way. And you know what the result was. But why did that result come? It wasn't just a judgment that God was angry that they hadn't continued to walk with him in agreement and reverence to what he had already said, go this way. And they went that way instead. It wasn't even their agreement with the powers of darkness, with, the, the, with Satan, with the serpent. It was that it loosened, it triggered like an epidemic the possibility 
of every human generation after that making the same mistake. And as a result, one of the things that happened is God had to determine not to allow those human beings just to live forever. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if, I don't know, pick one, Paul Pot never had mortal death? How many more millions would have suffered and died? So there are all kinds of examples. It was a, a means, death was a means of at least temporarily pausing wickedness and evil that humans were able after that to choose. There are three events that are significant in the original evolution of the revelation of God in relation to the human race. And they all happen right in Genesis. And those three events are the one I just spoke of. The second one is in Genesis 6 that describes a freaky interaction between spiritual beings and human beings, indicating that the ancient worldview was still a supernatural one. I mean, a lot of people don't believe in spirits now. They don't believe in demons. But the Bible is very clear that there is a real spiritual realm where good and evil functions. But Genesis 6 describes a disastrous intercommunication. In fact, it literally says that the sons of God came down because they saw the daughters of men and they were beautiful and they came down and they basically took for themselves wives and produced a hybrid offspring. And that is the way that the ancient Israelites regarded those yet remaining clans of giants. And that's what our Bible says. Now, I know that lots of theologians, because they can't really parse that out or break it down or explain it, say, well, we'll just skip over that part. But if you have a supernatural worldview, you're like, huh, I could look around my world today and tell you that a lot of the ideas that are coming out of human minds and even some of the world's most influential leaders meeting together, the ideas coming out of those human minds, they are definitely communicating with powers of darkness. So that Genesis 6 was the second. Now these were foundational all the way up to the time of Jesus. They were foundational in the understanding of what was happening. And then the third event, again, it's a progression of following on from the very same dynamic at work in the human race. The next event was the Tower of Babel. And God said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to disperse. 
I want you to go in your clans, in your tribes, and I want you to go throughout the earth. And there was an intention in that. And instead, they chose globalism. They all decided they would all go to one place. It was a very flat place. And they decided when they got there that they wanted to build a city and a tower, make a great name for themselves. I mean, do you, it was exactly all of taking what God had put of his image into the human race. And they, they had decided, we will take all of this and go our own way with it and make something. And culminating in the ziggurat, which is archaeologically, there's you know, lots of evidence uh, for that. And um, as you know, they, they built this city. It was called Babel because when the Lord saw what they were doing with the gifts and the intellect and the technologies and all of those things that he had given them the ability for and had told them specifically not to do with it what they were doing, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, maybe like the Russian icon painter Rublev, his one of the Trinity, remember that one where the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all with the same faces are sitting around a table in heaven and they're conversing. If you've been with us very long, you've seen it. Um, they said, this is a problem. Let us go down and confuse the language. And what do you imagine that confusion looked like? A bunch of hot debate division, antagonism, anger towards one another. They couldn't, I can't, I, I'm leaving this town. I don't want to live here if you're living here anymore. God literally gave them over to the lowest of human impulses to break up that idea that they have. But think for a moment of what they were building with how they were building. And the Bible says very specifically that they were creating bricks and firing them and they had created asphalt and mortar and they were putting these things together and building this great edifice to reach up to heaven to make their name great. So there was no, and in fact, it was the reverse, the opposite of anything initiated by the Lord. And that was the key. If God had told them to build that city, even to use their technology and all the things that he had given them, if he told them to do it and they'd done it in response, the result would have been different. But they were doing it out of their own imagination, their own thing, and that together they felt empowered and supreme. I mean, the Bible is so relevant, even in some of these most bizarre stories. It actually shows us insight into the current affairs in the earth of every generation. The ills, problems of society, and the potential solutions, and discernment about exactly what is happening. And so we can learn, you know, from all of it. But if you follow the narrative of God on from there, God comes, as he did to Noah, when the wickedness and all of that self-thinking had also turned into violence. 
I got a video yesterday from people who live in a region of the U.S. that's been in severe drought. It's actually desert, but it's been in drought. And suddenly, rains have been coming, and they videoed a literal river washing through the desert and, <coughs> excuse me, sent it. And as I looked at it, I said, man, anything is possible with our God. His word says he makes the desert bloom. So even in a societal way, when it seems that everything is dried up and there's no good fruit anymore, God can send the rain of his spirit and create a river that makes glad the city of God. Right? So Noah, God said, look, I can't take any more of this. I'm just going to drown them all imagine it was pretty bad I confess to you there are times like I excuse me you see little 13 and 14 and 18 year old boys beating up a 70 year old woman breaking into her house stealing her watch and purse and nothing happens to them I'm just like take those kittens and just put them under it's like, I remember when I was a kid, Shirley Temple, one of the, one of the Shirley Temple movies was, um, you know, during the Confederacy in the Deep South, and Shirley Temple and these little kids are playing, and she's playing the preacher, right? And they go down to the river, and she takes one of her little playmates and takes him into the river and dunks him and brings him up, and he's just sputtering and, you know, trying to breathe. She said, are you saved? And he goes, and she dunks him again. She brings him up. She says, are you saved? And, he, and she puts him down again. He comes up the next time and she said, are you saved? And he's <laughs> kind of like what happened to Naaman. In fact, a lot like what happened to Naaman. But there is a theme of altars because when Noah and his family were saved out of the flood, which was initiated by God, even as the altar sacrifice worship had been initiated by God in Adam's family, that was the problem with Cain. Have you ever wondered, what's the problem with Cain's offering? It was because they already, and maybe our Bible isn't specific about all those in-between details, but God had initiated by what he had done for Adam and Eve a way of worship. And it was a way of responding to him. And Cain decided to show off his prowess instead. I mean, his father was a, an amazing gardener, an exquisite farmer. Cain had learned Abel, not Abel. Abel's probably laying around half the day and, you know, taking care of a few little bat, bat. But God had initiated a prescribed way to respond to him. And when Cain chose to do it his way, God said, no. And Cain didn't like that. And God said, Cain, if you would be corrected, good. But if not, sin is like a crouching demon waiting to take over you. And he gave in to that, right? Even to the point of killing his brother and blah, blah, blah. You know the story. But in the middle of all of these stories, if we had been there, as eyewitnesses, we would have been very aware of the centrality of uh, God-initiated worship and man's response in relationship to him. The idea of the altar. 
The ancient Hebrew word is literally from the word slaughter site. So God did the first one. He covered Adam and Eve. That initiated the way that man was to continue to relate to him when the veil was closed. And it was by hearing the word of the Lord, meeting him in a place that he had ordained, listening to his voice, and responding with a memorial, yes, Lord, I hear and I respond. And so that's kind of a picture of ultimately what would come in the gospel. God's ultimate redemptive promise. The reunification of the human race with himself. And that is why there is no other name under heaven whereby we might be saved. Only one way. God initiated, gave it to us specifically in him. Jesus Christ. And he lay on the ultimate slaughter site, Calvary, on Mount Moriah, outside the city of Jerusalem. And if you follow the journey of God coming to that climax, coming to that pinnacle, you will find him in those altars of the patriarchs leading all the way through Noah, Abraham, Abram at first, then Abraham, four different very significant altars. But none of them initiated either by Noah or by Abram or Abraham. Always when the Lord came and met them, revealed himself, and they responded there. So an altar was built there and worship went up. Stay with me because we're going somewhere. We want to envision and realize that he has made us that altar. Our hearts are a place where God may continually come down to rest speak to us face to face, initiate in us his will, his way, his fire, his awakening, his prophetic word, his acts of power, that we might recognize, meet with him there, and respond. Your heart is the altar. Put your hand on your heart. Receive the fire today. Receive the fire of the Lord. So the altar story continues exactly as I have described it to you. The main thing is, say this, initiated and prescribed in certain places where the Lord chooses to put his name and meet with us. He sends the fire on the altar. It's one of the reasons church, actual church meetings, are holy for him. He's ordained that his priests, his saints, meet together in congregations, in human congregations. And yeah, thank God for technology. 
but it can become like those fired bricks and asphalt that was used in the Tower of Babel. Certainly, if people choose it rather than actually being organically in the place where the Lord is speaking and his presence is moving corporately. It's his plan. There's a unique design in it. And if we will be willing to participate and respond to him, no telling what he will do for us, in us, with us, and with us together. It's his design. It goes through the altar stories of Abraham, which culminates with Genesis 22 and the big test. And in every one of the altars that Abraham built where God came, revealed himself, spoke to him, and it was there he was meeting with Abraham, and Abraham built an altar, responded back. The people around were witnessing this is a different form of worship. This is a different kind of altar. Who is this man worshiping? We know our idol God of our pagan locale. We have idols. We have altars to him. We have our prescribed ways of doing things like sacrificing our children in order to break a drought and all that. But what is this man doing? And why is he growing richer and richer? And why suddenly are we afraid of him? Because he has another God with him that we don't yet know. So those altars, that response of worship initiated by God were very important because it was evangelical. And the Bible says that all the nations around where Abraham was going became afraid of him. The kings of those places that had never been afraid of anybody, everybody had been afraid of them, would come to him and say, we can see the Lord is with you. Let us make a covenant of peace so you don't destroy us. because of the right response to the meeting with God and the worship that was demonstrated as a way of life and instructed his children. That's what God meant when he said, I'm choosing you because I know you're going to respond to me and your children will see it and they will learn and you will tell them this is the way we walk, walk in this way. And in every place that Abraham has one of these dramatic, challenging encounters. He never initiates it, always initiated by the Lord. But every one of them is a test. And that's why he's called the father of our faith. Because in every place, he believes the Lord. And God says, you're a righteous man. That's what it's all about. So the law of righteousness in relationship with God was established in Abraham before the law of Moses. The ultimate test, Genesis 22. And it says, now after these things, the Lord tested Abraham. Like he hadn't tested him already. But you see, he kept responding in the right way. And the ultimate test was when God came to him that day and said something absolutely bizarre. And it was bizarre for two or three or four reasons. It was bizarre because by this time, and I know we've imagined that Isaac was always a little boy. No, probably not. If you actually look at the narrative and understand the time that was passing, he was probably in his 30s, maybe even 40 years old. And he was the promised son. Up until that time, there was no other possible genetic 
recreation, procreation uh, individual through which God could fulfill his promise to Abraham. I'll give you descendants as the stars of heaven. I will give you this land as a possession. Be a blessing. You, I will bless you. Now you be a blessing in the earth. None of that could have been fulfilled, would have died in Abraham. But now he had Isaac, also the supernatural promise of God. The thing that made them laugh when God said it's so ridiculous. They had waited a long time for that promise to be fulfilled. And God intended that it would linger and linger and linger and linger until it was impossible for it to be fulfilled in human strength. They were both too old. And there was no Viagra in those days. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Robbie, you probably should have stayed in the drum cage. <sighs> but he waited till it was impossible in the natural. And sometimes he does. Sometimes he does. And so now... Everybody, you know, Abraham knows, I, hey, I can go in peace because the lineage is going on. The possession of the land, the fulfillment of all the promises. And then God appears to him and said, Abraham, yes, Lord, take your son, your only heir, the one you love, and go to the place that I will show you and offer him up there. Do you know that was the ritual of the pagan idol worshipers influenced under the overlord of demonic powers. But this relationship of, if you'll allow me, friend to friend, father to son, that had been developed over those years Abraham knew the thing to do is just to say yes and begin going. And it says early the next morning, he got up, he saddled his donkey, he took wood, he took fire, he took his son, he took a couple of guys with him to carry the wood and all that kind of stuff and set out. Three-day journey. Abraham liked the first thing when God called him out of Ur, right? So now in a way we're full circle, but this time. Go to a place I will let you see. Lord, where are we going? I'll show you when we get there. How would he know? Because he had learned to know the presence of the Lord and respond to his voice and respond quickly. And so three days journey, God brings him to a mountain called Moriah. Moria, actually. It means the mountain of seeing. Think about that for the mountain, the place of revelation, the place of understanding everything. And it was a mountain, a mountain range on a hill just outside a, an existing ancient city called Jabus. Happened to be the city where Abraham stood in the gates of that city and a priest named Melchizedek met him and they made a covenant. And little did Abraham know on that day 
that even in him was the future lineage that would own that city and it would be called Jerusalem. See how little acts of faith in response to the presence and word and leading of the Lord in our lives can have generational geopolitical impact. Could you believe? Abraham was just a man. Could you believe? And let your faith be stirred up to trust in the Lord. To devote yourself to learning the art of hearing and recognizing God and quickly obeying him. So they get to this place and Abraham makes that amazing profession of faith. It said he told the two young men that were with him, basically you stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and come back to you. That's why the New Testament says that Abraham believed in the resurrection. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Let your heart be encouraged today. Abraham went up on that mountain. He built an altar according to the prescription of God. And this, I want to say, you can read about it in Exodus and in Deuteronomy. There's, I think it may be Deuteronomy 24. I'm no, not for sure on that. But there is a specific portion of scripture later in the law that is called the law of the altar where we, hear, we see prescribed exactly how the Israelites were to build their altars. And it was a direct antithesis of Babel. No square bricks, no human technology, no asphalt, not according to your design or your initiation, an altar of earth, no hewn stones. So in building these altars, God was contradicting the overlord power of demonic forces that was influencing the human race to create their own way. Altars. But I hope that you can see how that brings us to the realities of the gospel. And why the gospel isn't just a religious system. It is a revelation of the undoing of all of the ancient curse. It is an introduction of a living relationship into the living God. While we're here on earth. In order that we might also be light in the darkness. And reveal this truth, this story. And God in his grace would give other hearts to also believe. You have an anointing and a calling from the Holy One. Isaac says to his father, Dad, would? This is one of the ways, too, that you know that he's a strong, full-grown man. is because Abraham takes that big load of wood and lays it on, he couldn't have done that on a six-year-old, 12-year-old boy. He just would have crumbled. This is a, a man. Notice Isaac as that man. What would you have done if your father was taking you with him on a journey like that? 
Isaac's saying, huh, we've got all the stuff to make the slaughter except the lamb. And Abraham says, the Lord will provide for himself the slaughter, the sacrifice. Oh, Jesus. We are so blessed that God has shown it. This is a biblical worldview we're talking about. We are connected to a long history of being favored and chosen, a holy nation, a peculiar people, called out to be priests and kings in the earth. They build the altar, and then Abraham begins to tie up Isaac. In real terms, Isaac could have said, no, I refuse, I, no. He gave himself to the bonds, trusting his father. This is an incredible, redemptive revelation of God and man in every way. And they certainly did not know that they were doing anything other than just obeying the word of the Lord in that moment. They didn't know that they were a literal redemptive picture of God the Father coming in future generations to that very spot with his own son, having bound him through the Romans and nailed him to a cross, creating an altar, a slaughter site in that same spot that would ultimately release the human race, past, present, future from the wages of sin and death. Could you believe that your obedience to the initiation of the Holy Spirit in your life could possibly be an active part in God's grand redemption narrative? Oh, Christian, you must believe. The Apostle Paul said, God thought about you in advance. He preordained when you would live and where you would live in order that men might seek and find the Lord. You have an anointing, an election and a calling from the Holy One. Make your election sure. So Isaac is on the altar. Abraham has the uh, knife. The fire is already going. And Abraham is going to go through with it. He raises his hand. And listen, when you would possibly raise your hand with a knife in order and put your, he's not doing it, you know, like, oh, my goodness, am I going to do this? No, I'm obeying God. I'm going to get this over with quickly. And suddenly, say suddenly. The angel of the Lord, friends, look at your Bible. It's with a capital A. You know what that is? It is a Christophany. There are several of them recorded in our Bible. It is the pre-incarnate Son of God met Abraham and his only son on the mountain at that altar that day. And it was Jesus 
that took hold of Abraham's hand. Knowing that he himself in future generations. Why does the scripture say the lamb was slain before the foundations of the world? John the Revelator saw altars of God. It's, there are certain things that are mysteries in a way. But we must have a supernatural worldview. And unfortunately, the world that walks in darkness and much of the church that lives as a subservient of the secular cultural worldview and trends is because... They do not believe. They don't hold a biblical worldview and say a supernatural biblical worldview. But any, anyway, so it was Jesus there. And you will find again and again in Abraham's life, when God moves, it says Abraham lifted up his eyes. Look at your neighbor. Look him in the eyes. You know, Reinhard Bonnke had this saying. People would say to him, you have the most unusual eyes. And he said, yes, well, thank you. It's just that from time to time, Jesus comes and looks out the windows. <laughs> Christ in you, the hope of glory. For real. So it was Jesus that day on the mountain. And it says, Abraham lifted up his eyes, Moriah, the mountain of seeing, the mountain of revelation. And he saw a ram caught in the thicket and he named that altar Jehovah Jireh the Lord our provider it's about much more than financial means than food and drink and clothing it is about the provision of eternal election and calling and inheritance and life and reward. The story of the altar is absolutely beautiful, brilliant, significant. You'll see it breaks the curse, it brings the blessing, it names and anoints places as open heaven. Those responses to God in your life create memorials. And it's not just the people around you, it's the powers of heaven, earth, and hell that are witness. So if you feel a little opposition to your faith from time to time, guess what? We wrestle. Not we wrestle not. We wrestle. <laughs> okay? It is. And that's also why it's so important for us to meet together and encourage one another and hear what the Lord is saying. And all of that, friends, began with the inspiration and the watch of God quickening the concept, the word once again of the altar. And so where do you go when he quickens a word? You go right to your scripture and let him begin to let us see what he's talking about and how it might apply in our lives. And in this moment, God is speaking to us prophetically concerning the altar of our heart. The culmination of the human altar initiated by God in the altar story of the Old Testament in the patriarch narratives is Solomon's temple. When God gave David the blueprint of heaven's temple. And until that time, it was a tabernacle 
moving around. But still, those altar places were where God said, where I choose to put my name, and I will meet with you there. Not where you choose, where I choose. And I will meet you with you there to speak to you face to face. The mountain of seeing. And ultimately, it always brings us back to the cross. And through the cross, into the realities in which we dwell now, the resurrection and the coming of the Lord. So Solomon, when they made that stationary slaughter site, would have been this massive acacia wood and overlaid with bronze, had a net in the middle of it. You'd put the wood underneath there and the net over it with the sides around the four horns on the altar. And they were specifically there. The priests from time to time would put the blood of the slaughter on those horns because those horns were places that people convicted even of manslaughter could run and hold on to the horns of the altar. And that would be their plea, their jurisprudence plea for mercy and protection for forgiveness and refuge. Powerful stuff, all of it foreshadowing the realities that we possess now in Christ and we carry to give to others. That slaughter site. And you read in your scripture, Solomon dedicated the temple according to the design and initiation of God. It was their response, unlike Babel, this city, this temple, God had said, here, build here. By the way, there was another moment in between Abraham and Solomon's site. Do you remember what it was? It's also significant because we're watching God and learning his ways, culminating in the revelation of Jesus. David. Because that same spot where Abraham had taken Isaac, the three-day journey from where his tent was pitched into that unique place. Generations later, David is back there and has inadvertently loosed a horrible plague that is killing off the Israelites. Because if you remember the story, David got either a little sure of himself or a little insecure, and he started numbering. In other words, he was measuring whether in human strength they could overcome their enemies. And the Lord did not like that. And the prophet came to David and said, you've got three choices. And he gave David three choices. The first two would be delivered into the hand of their enemies. And the last one, was delivered into the hand of the Lord. And David said, I choose that one every time because I know that ultimately, like Lamentations says, David didn't quote Lamentations, but I'm quoting Lamentations, the steadfast love of the Lord never fails. His compassions, his mercies are new every morning. Delivered into the hand of God, a plague hit Israelites and they were dying like flies. And about the third day, David cries out to the Lord. And the Lord tells David to go to that particular place. It was then owned by a man named Aruna outside the city of Jabus. It was a threshing floor. And Aruna was there 
threshing wheat in the harvest season, David comes and he says, I want to buy this piece of land. Now, did David know that Abraham had been there with Isaac? I don't know. But God had appointed that place because Jesus was going to be on that slaughter site. And David buys the field and he builds an altar there. Later, the blueprint from heaven, the altar for the temple would be in that same place. It's a beautiful story. I hope this inspires it for me. You know how I am about the scripture and about the real narrative of the Bible and imagining, thinking of ourselves as real human beings in these stories and let it also inspire us in our real human life according to that kind of grand possibility that God is with us and he's doing something marvelous in and through us and in our generation in the boundaries wherein we dwell. When Solomon finished building And bringing all the offerings to that altar, that slaughter site, God lit the fire. Literally, Scripture says, when they'd finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the sacrifice that was on the altar. Once again, the initiation of God, and here was the law of the altar. Once God initiated the fire on that altar. He said, now you keep it burning. Never let it go out. And that's the word of the Lord to us today. Remember the day of Pentecost? Divided flames of fire descended and set where? On each one. On each one. The old revivalists, the Jeffreys Brothers, Scotland, Wales, UK. Are you burning? They would ask. They would ask the little children, are you burning, son? Daughter, are you burning? Divided flames of fire. What, do you see the story here? You have been caught up into this grand, epic narrative with the creator God and his plan for the human race. It's not just about you and friends. This is not just a self-help book. It's a revelation, an instructive, powerful, alive, active revelation. And we're being enfolded in the ongoing story. So I want to ask you today concerning the altar of your heart, are you burning? Are you burning? And yes, this was the message more or less that I was preaching when I lost my skirt. <laughs> oh, yes. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> So Naaman's story, he was the most powerful man on earth at the time because it was by his military prowess that the, all the other nations were vassals, tax-paying vassals of Naaman's king. 
And the Bible says that that king leaned on Naaman's arm, leaned on the arm of strength and prowess that Naaman had. But Naaman had a problem that all of his human prowess could not address. He was a leper. And it's quite likely that nobody knew it except Naaman and the people of his immediate household. And in one of the terrible raids that Naaman had conducted in Israel, he had abducted and probably killed her family members, but abducted a little girl, and she was a slave in his household. And one day, she said to Naaman's wife, you know, there is a man in Israel who can heal him. It calls her a servant. And you see the word and the way of servants, different ones throughout the story of Naaman that are participating by literally a life laid down, choosing a higher way than their own will. Would you? If you were an abducted little slave girl, would you, if you held the secret for the man responsible for your condition, if you held the secret for his healing, would you have said? Or would if you have inside waited with happy, hopeful glee for the day that he was going to die? But again and again in that story, it's the servant's word that comes and turns the way and brings it to its ultimate fulfillment, which is, of course, Naaman dipping in the river seven times. And so maybe today, watching at home here in the sanctuary, you may be on the second or third dip or fourth or fifth. What test, what time has this revisited your life? Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, therefore let us run with patience and endurance and gain the prize, not turning back. I know this morning God is initiating fresh fire on your heart and mind. So let us respond. May your faith increase this morning. May your patience be girded up to endure. May all rejection, self-centeredness, fear of man, uncertainty, brokenheartedness, disappointment, anger, self-serving, striving, even for survival, be put away. Respond to the initiation of his call on your life. And make that calling an election sure. So we welcome, Holy Spirit, your fire this morning. Come down on these altars of earth, even on our hearts today. We receive you, and we say, yes, Lord.
want to invite you just to take a little step of faith this morning and where you are to actually stand up wherever you are. Not by my word, but in the opportunity or possibility that just like when God spoke to Abraham and tested his heart, it says that he got up early and headed out. And in your yes to the Lord this morning, we welcome. Lord, we welcome. Say, Lord, I welcome your fire today. Go ahead and just release your worship, your prayer, your confession. Speak to the Lord this morning. There's nothing you can say that will offend or surprise him. Speak to the Lord. Because today, my friends, let us lay aside every weight and any sin that so easily makes us stumble or draw back. It's as the writer says, we are not of those who draw back, but of those who press forward even to full salvation for our God is a consuming fire. Let your fire fall. Let your fire We hope you enjoyed this message. To order more great resources by Bonnie Chavda, visit us at chavdaministries.org. For a full catalog of our products, you can call us at 1-800-730-6264. God bless you.